The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello. I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm pleased to welcome Naomi Shihab Nye. Naomi lives in old downtown San Antonio, Texas, a block from the Sleepy River. She's written or edited 30 previous books, including Red Suitcase, Fuel, and You and Yours with BOA Editions Limited. Her collection, 19 Varieties of Gazelle, Poems of the Middle East, was a finalist for the National Book Award, and her collection, Honey Bee, was awarded the Arab American Book Award. Her poetry anthologies include Time You Let Me In, What Have You Lost, and This Same Sky. And she's also the author of the novels Habibi and Going. Her book of short, short fiction from Greenwill Willow Books is called There Is No Distance Now. She's the two-time winner of the Jane Addams Book Award for Peace and Justice and four-time winner of the Pushcart Prize, as well as the recipient of several fellowships, including a Lannan Fellowship, a Guggenheim Fellowship, and the Witter Binner Fellowship from the Library of Congress. She's currently serving on the Board of Chancellors for the Academy of American Poets. Welcome, Naomi. Thank you, Cheryl. Wonderful to be with you. Wonderful to have you. And I just want to start by expressing some personal gratitude to you. I can't remember who it was, but when my first wife was very ill, someone brought your poem, Kindness, to us. And uh, it inspired us. It lifted us up. It helped us. Um, The line that stayed with me over the years, this was probably, I want to say, early 19... No, yeah, early in 1990s, um, the line that's that's stuck all these years is, before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. And um, it just uh, still speaks to me and is a good way of starting our conversation. I'm, I'm very touched to hear that, Cheryl, and... Uh... I, I, I always feel I should confess about that poem that I feel it was spoken to me almost as a gift out of the air in a very desperate time. Uh, and it was probably due to my practice of writing every day and, and listen, trying to listen closely to, um, to everything that I was given such a gift which, which really helped me find my balance and figure out what to do next in the in the situation my my brand new husband and I were in. 
mm-hmm. uh, after being robbed of everything on our honeymoon. So it is amazing to me that the poem has befriended so many people, and I am very grateful to whatever source it was in the universe that spoke it to me and helped me uh, find language again after feeling just dumbfounded by by uh, a swerve on a journey. Mm. I don't know if you've ever heard the expression, chance favors the prepared mind. Uh, oh, I love that. That's, uh, that's, that's sort of what you make me think of when you say that. Right. Um, and uh, what's what's interesting to me is, of course, my um, my wife's loss of health was a very different type of loss. But I yes. think, but I think it it is so universal what you're talking about that when we're kind of brought to our knees, uh, things open. And right. I feel that I feel that way about the book that we're here to talk about today too. Transfer that that you you've. Um, you invited me to dive into my own uh, loss of my father. I'm very grateful to know that you would think of your own father while reading this book, and I think that underscores something many poets uh, be- or writers in general believe about about text, is that the more specific you are sometimes, uh, the more you invite a larger experience with the material. And this is something young writers often worry about, you know, if I if I make my character in a poem too particular, will anyone else be able to care about the poem or relate to it? And I always say, the more, the better. Mm. You know, we want we want to see and feel a human being here, uh, whatever the poem is about. And yes, people do have that capacity for. Well, the word transfer comes up there too for transferring your person over to their own person, and having a, a human experience, even if it's a completely different person. Well, that's the thing. Uh, the way I felt reading, and, and we will share some of the poems in a little bit, but the way I felt reading was as if you had uh, evoked the experience as opposed to talking about the experience. That, oh, thank you. Uh, it, I just, I just um, had no barrier. <laughs> uh <laughs> Well, that is very touching to me, and it would also make my father very happy. Huh. <laughs> Your yeah. father. I, I was hoping we'd talk about him next because... I would love thing- to talk about him. He's my favorite <laughs> subject always. You know, um, although our fathers have very, very different um, lives and experiences, one thing was um, really called forth by getting to know your father in the book, which is that my father was a civil rights worker and very passionate about justice and peace and very sad that um, regardless of certain progresses at the end of his life, he didn't have a sense of true progress. And um, mm. I, I was, you know, as as if the wheels had kept turning around to a similar spot. Um, yeah. It was quite hard for him. And um, I felt that with your father, too, that looking back on his life, he was mourning um, lifelong losses. Absolutely. You're so correct. and And that same feeling of wasted possibilities and human beings uh, sort of remaining in these cycles of 
of ritualized violence and 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 revenge and you know you do this to me I'll do that to you the kind of sad cycle uh he was always hopeful that people would be more creative and figure out a way to step out of that cycle and say well guess what we can do something better all together and let's try this mm. and so to feel that frustration in him in his last weeks, and he talked about it openly because the hospital chaplain kept goading him into this topic, and it was never Mm. hard to get him to talk about it, but, you know, when he was actually very, very ill and dying, I was amazed at how much energy he could muster to talk to this man uh, and really sort of summarize what he felt the issues were, the problems were, and he still maintained hope. He made that very clear. I'm not giving up hope just because I'm not going to be here to, to be worrying about it actively from my body and my position. But but the rest of you are going to have to carry the hope and, you know, come on. Like he, was, mm. he was fretful about having to give it up before it was resolved. Uh, he sounds as if he was... Um much, much more open uh, than my father talking about those things. I would, I would have to pay close attention to a word here and there, or you know, um, perhaps that would have been different if my dad hadn't died suddenly. <laughs> because oh dear, um, really? You know, you're you're kind of talking about this end of life place where we're sort of uh-huh. reviewing and leaving legacy, aren't we? But was right. he always that way? Was he always willing to talk about what he, he believed was. and his losses and kind yes. of his life experience? He was. He was very, very expressive all of his life. And it used to fascinate me as a child to hear the stories about how he was hired as a teenager of about 14 or 15 by the BBC station in Jerusalem to read the evening news. And uh, in English, on their channel mm. there. And I used to say, Dad, who hires a kid to read the evening news? And mm. he said, well, I had a good accent. They liked my voice. And mm. I have actually seen him in a documentary now reading the news at, at that age. And it was co- quite extraordinary that he was able to uh, begin speaking sort of through a radio station and then carry on in his own life speaking publicly whenever anyone invited him. Uh, When I was a child, I would go with him in St. Louis where he immigrated to, ultimately, um, and he would speak to any church group or any school group or community kind of rotary club, lions club, that invited him to come and give a little talk on the Holy Land. And he was ready to go even after a full day of work. And I remember uh, marveling, even when I was a child, that he never seemed frustrated when people would ask uh, what sounded like rather uninformed questions to me even back then. Mm. Um, He would sort of gently try to educate or enlighten the audience member, you know, kind of wherever he or she was in their understanding. And I I was really respectful of that. All my life, he was a talker. He became a newspaper journalist. Of course, newspaper journalists are traditionally very curious, always asking questions, 
Um, and he carried that spirit of discussion and dialogue with him everywhere he went. He was always founding clubs in his later years, like this will be a, a discussion group, we'll all get together, uh, and we won't talk about politics or religion. Those were his banned topics. And I used to think, wow, that's not going to work very long by this time I was an adult. But he could pull it off. You know, let's talk about culture. Let's tell our stories. Let's find all of the ways that we might mirror one another's experience instead of just becoming oppositional. But what's interesting is in you, uh, I, I felt so much, and I'll, and I'll have you read a poem that begins to... Uh, bring this out. I felt so much that he could be this person that um, had experiences that could inflame people this way or that or the other. But you blend humanity so completely that it. Um, I, I just feel connected to him as a human being in his experience. Oh, thank you. Well, that would make him the happiest, Cheryl, because he loved people, he loved making new friends, meeting people, and the idea that somehow through writing about him, I could keep introducing him to people makes me very happy. (laughs) So let's give people a little flavor of that. I mean, he's such a big presence that also such a big absence, Uh, you know, I... I feel that with my own dad, too. Just, uh, oh, such a big, big space in the world he does not fill, you know. Um, Would you share tiny cucumbers with people? I would love to. I would love to. I even have one in my refrigerator at this very moment. And this poem has a quote from the the terrific poet Jack Riddle, uh, originally of Michigan, who said to me shortly after my father's death, Um, grief is an ambush. You're walking along feeling fine. Look down, see a leaf, and begin to weep. So this is tiny cucumbers. Slim specimens the size of a pickle. Your excitement lit up the aisle. Happy with a salad, cup of mint tea. We lived that way for years. Minor days tucked one into another. But what restlessness underground, pit of the plum. Nothing worked out in the homeland, came to fruition, or changed. Depressed stayed depressed. You wouldn't use a cane, though you'd collected them for years. It will make me look old. You'll look older if you're dead. Not true. In your last bed... You became a sleek young man, skin unruffled, after the last horrible hour. We want memories, compact as mounds of tiny cucumbers, mottled green. But they're not. They're dim hallways, strange curvaceous aches. The years we'd do anything to replay. And here's a leaf in the shape of an A. And I cannot go on. Well, at this point in the book, I I do think I've mentioned that my father's name was Aziz. So the leaf in the shape of an A Mm -hmm. was what caused grief to ambush me that particular day. 
Well, that's that's the thing that um, that I notice. It's not the expected moments. Um, for right. instance, I, I'm often not that upset on an anniversary day, a death day, right. or a birthday. Um, it's when something catches me off guard. Exactly. Uh, when I'm not expecting anything, and right. something hits it. Yes. And you really, yes, absolutely. And you realize with grief that it's so unpredictable. You could be going along just fine and even talking about the loved person or the subject of your grief very openly with many people, but all of a sudden some tiny fragrance or a song in a grocery store or just some little... Actually, one of the things that's caught me the hardest is the posture of certain a certain size of man from the rear. Like you see mm. someone across a, a grocery store, and, and frequently in my case it turns out to be like an Asian man, which makes me laugh because I think my father would like that, you know, to be to be remembered even in a man who is of a background he was not. But it will be a certain stance or a line of the shoulders. That's the thing I've found that most often just causes me to weep unexpectedly and you and you can't predict that and you have to be mm-hmm. ready for it. Yeah. And I and I have to say that will uh I just passed I've mentioned on the show 20 years since my wife died. That will still oh happen occasionally. Uh yes. you know just right. being uh and it happened with the anniversary I was thinking, you know, I do this every year, right? <laughs> and then right. the the fact of twenty years just caught me completely unaware. Oh yeah. So um, I that I, makes sense. I think that goes that on. Be, yeah, it would go on, and it would become, in some ways, more poignant because you realize more time has passed, and this person is still so utterly present in everything you do. Mm, absolutely. And I think I think when it's apparent. Also, you have a a kind of cellular grief. It's as if there's something inside of your body that is remembering that isn't even, it's not even a mental thing. It's a a physical cellular response Mm. to the world. That's very interesting. Uh, it's it's about time for a break, but I really want to pick that up when we get back. Okay, good. Uh, that that definitely intrigues me a lot. So, listeners yeah. out there, you can find the links to all the ways to reach me at the Good Grief page at Voice America. I really welcome hearing from you by email or on my social media. And to find Naomi Shihab Nye, go to BOA Editions Limited. Be back soon. your life your health your network you're listening to voice america health and wellness follow the voice america talk radio network on twitter we're at voice america trn you'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows this week's featured guests and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? 
Every day, you hear so much about different aspects of the health and wellness field. One day, you hear one thing, and the next day, you hear something that contradicts what you heard the day before. How do you know what's right? Try tuning in to The Cutting Edge of Health and Wellness today with Dr. Neil Nathan. Our goal is to educate and explore this field with guest experts in order to help you take control of your health and well-being. Listen Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Naomi Shihab Nye, whose book, Transfer, is a beautiful collection of poems about her father and her grief following his death. And Naomi, we were we were talking during the break about picturing our dad sitting on a bench somewhere, um, watching this conversation that just makes me smile really broadly <laughs> to imagine too, I that. I love it. I think it's very nice. <laughs> and it connects for me with what we were talking about before the break, that when you lose a parent, uh, there's some, some cellular... Um, cellular experience beyond reason in a way. I was thinking about how when you're born, um, for most people, your parents are there. Um, you know, you, they, you have always had them. And yes. so for me, with my parents no longer here, it's such a dramatic shift of my world. Uh, yes. Not that I don't have them in certain ways, but... Um, their presence on this planet no more yes i hear i hear exactly what you're saying and i think of two beloved friends of mine who said separately after my father died and their fathers had already died years before they each said in slightly different ways well you'll discover him in new ways now you'll feel him in ways you didn't realize you already had him and one of the friends even said that she had felt strangely closer to her father after he died because she no longer had to share him with the rest of the world. And Uh I thought, wow, that's pretty strong. But there is definitely a way, I agree, that you feel closer to your loved person, if it's a parent. Or, you know, I'm sure in other cases as well, you could feel closer. Yeah, the the way in which that showed itself with both my parents is that I see them as uh, a man and a woman more than I could when they were living Interesting. Uh, in their totality yeah. as human beings, not just in their relationship to me and whatever the wonders and complications are of that. Yeah. <laughs> um, they seem more complete to me somehow. That's, that's interesting. I can imagine that. Yes, I see that. Hmm. I want. I was wondering as I was reading the book about that because um, your father, in his worldly um, impact, was so present in the book. Now I think you were very, very uh, connected to that 
before his death, but I wondered if it, if it, uh, you know, intensified some after his death. Well, I think there, I think there was always the deep connection feeling, uh, but it, it, it changed. I, I don't know if I would say, it, may, maybe I would say intensified in some ways. Yes, probably so. Um, and it's certainly at different times, like where you, you long to hear a response from that person and you're almost demanding a response, mm. you know, like uh, for, for a few years at least where you're carrying on your side of the conversation, but you really feel desperate to hear their response. And as time goes on, I think you do imagine the response um, for yourself, the clear response that you might have had. I, I feel I do. That's interesting because I, one thing that I um, that I say about grief is at first it's all about the absence, and then later it can be about the presence. Oh, uh, interesting! Yeah, that's yeah. that's sort of what you're talking about in a way. I think so. Yes, and uh, I loved. A book many years ago by the Scottish poet, I think I mentioned this in Transfer, at least one somewhere, um, a book called Weathering by Alastair Reed, a beautiful Scottish poet um, who actually died after my father died. And he had written a poem about his father dying and ends the book with now begins, I mean, or ends the poem with now begins the conversation going on and on and on. And I remember being stunned by that idea when I first read it, when my father was just, you know, at the other end of the telephone, easy to reach. But knowing what Alistair Reed said was and would be absolutely true. You know, that's a good, a, a good place to kind of move to something I wanted to talk about. Um, that, uh, uh, you know, in your... In your introduction to the book, you said, um, and this just so stood out to me, he was already on dialysis. I would have done anything um, about him wanting to make a book with you. Right. Uh, and, um, and then that didn't happen necess- uh, completely in any case. Right. It did not happen, um, no. <laughs> uh, although he left you... I don't know. I I sort of thought he left you breadcrumbs or something, you know. Yeah, he did. He left you all this. Was it difficult for you to then take all of that and um, bring his voice so deeply into the book? Was it? Well, you know. For inst- oh, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, that's okay. Go ahead. Uh, when you when you work on a series of poems, there's a nice aspect is that each one is sort of a little tangible entity and you're really not seeing the entire arc of the book, how it's going to move, what it will contain as you're working on it. And in fact, my book Transfer does contain in the third section, especially some poems that have nothing visible to do with my father at all, but they are poems that were written somehow in his spirit or that I felt Mm -hmm. He would appreciate the information in the poems. He would have participated in them. And so to me, in my mind, they are involving him. But each tiny increment of poem uh, is an absorption all its own when you're working on it. And, and then when you start sort of laying them out 
on the floor and seeing them how they go together, except for the one section that is written in his voice, the 11 poems or 12 poems in his voice that have actual titles that I took from his notebooks, which, of course, I had never opened. I had never opened his notebooks on my own um, while he was alive. But then when I took this stack to my own little studio and stuck them on a shelf under my desk and then was unable to open them for two years, uh, they sort of started developing a quite a presence under there. And I thought, I, I really need to start looking in them. I, I need that voice. I need to hear what they're saying. And to find these floating lines that were much more like poems to me than journalistic stories, uh, which was his forte, um, was amazing because I thought, well, these are little titles waiting to happen. They're just floating all over mm-hmm. the place. and. Mm-hmm. I need to help him out here. I need to take those and and write some poems for him. And then I guess I was secretly thinking, maybe that will be satisfying our frustrated dream of doing a book together. But the big surprise for me was that the poems came out in his voice, which I had not thought about at all. The so they, I made, they spoke themselves a little like... They started speaking <laughs> themselves in a voice which had a pacing... Uh, in a rhythmic style, much more like him, like his voice, than like my voice. And I really felt I was listening to him complete the piece of writing. It's hard to describe, but anyone who tries, you know, or who writes, say, a novel with many characters in it, you start hearing those characters speak their own lines, and you're just racing to try to record them and, and not lose them. So... I felt that happening in the series of poems, and it was a gift. It was very much a gift. And I felt that I discovered things that I hadn't known when I set out, you know, thinking of writing that series of poems. It was like he was, he continued teaching me through his voice. Mm. A little odd, but I would recommend it to anyone to try it. Well, I'm really glad you said the thing about not being able to uh, open up the the journals for uh, a couple of years. Um, I have a a big box of letters between my parents. Uh, Before they got married, they lived in different locations, and they wrote each other every day. Boy, it's it's very hard. That's extraordinary. What a trove. Yes, but I'm. I can read one or two at a time. <laughs> it's you know, it's taking me well, quite a while sense. to uh, to to really dive into that because you know after yeah. you know sixty plus years of of being told never to go in that box, you know to then right. um, to then have it be in your home and be yeah. open. Is is really quite an adjustment. I wonder if that was true for you. If if that's part oh, of that's, it, being under the desk for two years, you know, that is fascinating. I mean, to think of having a trove of of personal letters of that kind. Um, wow, you know, I I guess we're we're a more scattered family. There are letters scattered here and there. And recently, I found a letter my father wrote me right after his fiftieth birthday, and uh, and it was so touching to read it again. It was just stuck in with a bunch of papers because it was funny, and 
really unexpected and also the only time I've ever seen him use the word ain't. He was such a grammarian that mm. in both languages, I understand, people who spoke Arabic with him said he was in Arabic as well. But, uh, but to see him say ain't, and he was referring to turning 50, but I ain't scared. And now in retrospect, you know, being way past 50 myself, it makes me laugh and just think, um, what, a, what an amazing treasure this is to have this letter in my hand right now. Yeah, and and these these letters, of course, are basically from when they were in their early twenties. Such yeah, a different, really such intense. a different voice from the parents. Right. I I know and remember. It's, I mean, it's because those something. letters must be filled with passion and idealism about relationships and hopes and dreams and sweetness. So that would be. I can see Cheryl. That would be very intense. It would not be not be something you could just whip through and read a lot of them because each one would be transporting you into a, a whole other kind of time and space in your cellular memory. Absolutely. And also, um, you know, to connect with um, what I'd like to ask you about next, um, you mentioned uh, young idealism, uh, my my father in particular was really an idealist. He was he had a sort of worldly depression his whole life because of because of yeah. the difference between the way he wanted to see the world and the way it was. Right. And um, it I've I felt that about your father in your book um, a few weeks ago. I interviewed Francis Weller, um, and he has the idea of there are five of five five gates of grief and um, one of them he calls the sorrows of the world um, that that there's sort of there's a gate into feelings of loss and experiences of loss that has to do with the sorrows of the world which I felt so much in your book I wonder if you could read Hello Palestine because that's one of the poems yeah. that really really brought well, that and- in for me Oh, thank you. And the sorrows of the world as they continue in the lives of so many refugees as well. Mm, Yes. Hello, Palestine. In the hours after you died, all the pain went out of your face. Whole governments relaxed in your jawline. How long had you been away from the place you loved best? Every minute was too much. Each year's bundle of horror stories, more trees chopped, homes demolished, people gone crazy. You'd turn your face away from the screen. At the end, you spoke to your own blood filtering through a machine. We'll get there again, friend. When you died, your long frustration zipped its case closed. Everyone in a body is chosen for trouble and bliss. At least nothing got amputated, I said, and the nurses looked quizzical. Well, if only you had seen his country. Of course, there are a few references in that poem that uh, that refer, you know, to the physical landmass of Palestine slash Israel. You know how the Palestinian uh, 
sections of the country, territories, occupied territories, whatever you want to call them, how they've been getting smaller and smaller over the years, and um, and 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 so many roots and vineyards and fields chopped off by the the horrible separation wall, and then the line about everyone in a body is chosen, you know, definitely referring to the mysterious concept of chosen and unchosen people. Mm. Um, and also the just the sense of so many stories which go unreported by mainstream media, and my father, being a journalist, was acutely aware of them, and, you know, how things were spun, how headlines were twisted, how it was always the fault of the Palestinians, everything bad that ever happened, although, of course, it wasn't. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that sense of um, grief and frustration that there wasn't more equivalency or or equitable justice in the circumstances of the two peoples. And he tried to emphasize, because that was so frustrating, all of that manifestation of of injustice was so frustrating, he tried to emphasize, you know, going back sort of before that to his really strong belief about Arab and Jewish people being brothers and sisters. And this whole tragedy and trauma of occupation and making of refugees and generations of refugees, etc., was a terrible, terrible swerve from the destiny these people should have had together. And Mm. so uh, he would often surprise people who would want to engage him by talking about some horrible thing that happened last week um, by kind of going farther back in time and having a more more balanced, um, equal feeling of urgency about recognition of the source of all this discomfort and, and injustice and, um, you know, why it didn't have to be that way and why people really needed to go back to that earlier feeling that he had grown up with in the city of Jerusalem, that, you know, Jewish kids were his friends. Mm-hmm. And, they, and they all shared um, desserts and stories and streets, and uh, there wasn't a sense of terrible division among among people of Jerusalem in the in the 20s and 30s and and uh and early 40s and he talked about that a lot often to people's frustrations who just wanted to say you know how how bad it was what happened yesterday in a way you're talking about the human story under these you know groups of yes. people stories and yes. um uh, it it connects with with something I wrote down um, uh, from your book. There's a way not to be broken that takes brokenness to find it. Yeah, you know we we have to break our hearts open to each other <laughs> to begin. Bef- it seems before to we me. have empathy for one another. Yes. Yeah, let's, and in let's fact, pick that up when we come back. Okay, we, uh, it's time for another break already. <laughs> Um, a chance for listeners to go find us. I'm at weatheringgrief.com and Naomi Shihab Nye. You can find at BOA Editions Limited. We'll be back right after the break.
Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I've been talking with Naomi Shihab Nye about the book of poetry she wrote for her father after his death, Transfer. And before the break, we were talking about um, how how brokenhearted we, I, I certainly am, to watch groups of people um, dehumanizing each other and um, absolutely seeing that, you know, with the refugees right now. Um, and, uh, it certainly is a little less true, but used to be quite true of a group I'm in the LGBT community, you know, where we can, we can take a whole community of people and just subtract the humanness. And that allows us to, to, um, brutalize each other without thinking we're hurting people. Right. It's, it's really... Um, amazing how sometimes we do need to be um, experiencing some kind of brokenness in order to feel empathy. And and you wonder when you see someone being cruel to someone else in any community, hasn't this person ever suffered? Um, mm. Don't they have any, you know, hard spots, pain, um, broken places so they could identify that that other person does too? It, it's very hard to to grasp that, that anyone could sort of bypass that. Um, there, there was a writer in Texas where I live named John Graves. He wrote many wonderful books. His most famous book was called Goodbye to a River. And John died, I think, last year, his 90s. And he used to say this beautiful quote, simple quote, you notice, and noticing, you live. And he really felt that noticing things about one another's lives or about the world at large, that was where our true life began. And, um, you know, it just seems that it would take the slimmest amount of 
noticing of our own brokenness or other people's brokenness to to be able to imagine it for someone else. Well, I I think you're talking maybe about a choice I I notice where people either break open or um, harden, or harden in response right. in response to their own suffering. I think you're right. Um, so it can go another way from the way right. you know we're talking about that it kind of right. breaks us open and um i i something i saw or read as i was um getting to know you before this hour uh was about you speaking to i believe it was a lunch group of jewish women oh yes uh-huh. Uh-huh. um and reading them all kinds of poetry without identifying what group of people the po- yes. the poems came from and uh would you talk about that a little i thought that was that just stu- so stood out to me well it was kind of a funny invitation because there was a women's lunch group luncheon group at a at a synagogue um in our city here and they asked me to come and they and they attached the detail that they didn't really like poetry. And I thought, well, this is very odd. Why do they want me at all? I mean, a half-Palestinian poet? I sound like their worst nightmare. So I started thinking about how could I make this fun or do something instructive that would be fun. And so I thought, well, I'll take a bunch of poems and excerpts of poems. I think I took like 20. And I will ask for a blackboard, and will I will not tell them who wrote the poem? I'll just, I'll just number the poems, and I'll present them. And in some cases, I only read like an excerpt because the poem was too long, but I would say, okay, who do you think wrote this poem? An Arab, an Israeli, um, you know, and, and they would make their, uh, make their selections. It was like a guessing game. And, uh-huh. after, and then we made the whole list, and afterwards I was so happy to tell them they were absolutely wrong about every single poem. Um, <laughs> And the thing that they were amazed about is they kept saying, but they all write like using the same imagery, the same hopes and dreams, the same, the same kind of landscape of longing for connection. I said, yes, that's my point entirely. And they also insisted they liked poetry better than they had ever thought they did because I selected <laughs> poems that were inviting, engaging, um, haunting, easy to understand. But what a lesson it was for all of us. And I was, of course, stunned that they were wrong about every single poem. Yeah, not um, just some of them, huh? No, not just some of them, but every single one. And so then, of course, they'd say, well, read that number eight again. There is no way that could be written by an Arab woman. And I would read it, and they would say, oh, my, that just sounds like a Jewish woman. I said, that's my point. <laughs> <laughs> so it was very fun, and I thought, really... This uh, this program should be repeated elsewhere. And, uh, you know, I think part of our job as poets is to try to engage people who are reluctant to hear imagery or who have some sort of resistance to the sort of exquisite selected language that I think of poetry as being. And, and you know, and, and let them see that it's not all one kind of language. There are all sorts of different styles and the odds are pretty high that you would like some of it. Yes. So um, it was a good experience. And I think we all left there with a lot of hugging and a lot of 
a, a sense of camaraderie that surprised us all, how strong it was. You know, to me, that's that's the source of my hope, not that everything will get better, but that in any moment, people can get better with each other. That That's Absolutely. carried yeah. as a possibility every minute. That's just such a beautiful example uh, of you cultivating that. Um, well, I love the quote that came from some women in Jerusalem. I'm not sure the specific person who said this, but... They said, peace is far too important to be, le- than to be left to politicians. So we all have to be making an effort in whatever realm we find ourselves in. I mean, I'm often with kids, so I talk about these things with kids and, and try to create a sense of deeper connection, not division. And because the world is so good with its constantly breaking news about dividing everyone, you know, I think we have uh, quite a tidal wave to work with um, to, to attempt to make, make bonds. I just have to tell you an amazing thing that happened two weeks ago was the anniversary of my father's death, the eighth anniversary. And he was able to write a book in the last year of his life while on dialysis called Does the Land Remember Me? A Memoir of Palestine. And it was published by Syracuse University Press, and it came out only three months before his death. And it was kind of a miracle to me that it even was able to come out that quickly. But uh, he had very gratifying responses to the book while he was still alive. And on the date of his death this year, a Jewish woman walking in Jerusalem entered an Arabic bookstore and found that book. And she took it home, and she read it all in one sitting. And she wrote me the most incredible email about how this one book for her was kind of a, a, a perfect condensation of, or, or, or a summary. Like It was so beautiful, she said, the story that gripped her of his life. But she said, this is the book that everyone in Israel needs to read. Everyone needs to think about the story of love for this land from this what seems like a completely other perspective, but really isn't, because it's Mm. so similar to ours. And the fact that she wrote me on his death date, and and also the coincidence that her name is Naomi as well, Mm. I thought I was having, you know, like an angel reaching out to me from the other side somewhere. So she and I have exchanged more notes, and she assures me that there is much more, which I always hear about, much more togetherness um, being attempted among Arab and Jewish people all the time. But so many political uh, actions work against that. You know, so many curfews and hardline ac- actions of government yes. um, work against that. And I just feel very grateful to have had, you know, a reader, and my father would be so happy to have a reader you know, eight years since the book came out, finding me just to tell me her profound response to it. Well, I I started crying when you were telling that story because the idea that your your father is still bringing his big heart and and putting it in front of himself and saying, um, see my experience, see what happened to me, see what... right." how my life was shaped by these events. 
you know. Right. Uh, just oh, Cheryl, very thank moving. Thank you for being so tender. I appreciate your kindness and tenderness. He would appreciate it as well. And um, you know, I think of once I was sitting with my grandmother. She was my Palestinian grandmother. Was 105 at the time. We were sitting in her house, and suddenly, out of the blue, we were tear gassed by soldiers, Israeli soldiers from outside, and it seemed so preposterous to me, like we hadn't been doing anything but just chatting and eating almonds and drinking tea. And afterwards, you know, I was so upset, and she said in Arabic to me, um, don't be mad, they just don't know our stories. And I thought, oh my gosh, how can she be... How can she say something that simple and so clear at a moment like this when when the tears are on our cheeks? Mm, they just don't know our stories. They just don't know our stories. And how would our lives be different all the time if we were really able to imagine other people's stories? Even the people in our daily lives, you know, wherever we live, who are giving us trouble or whom we're a little annoyed with for whatever reason... If we could really look at things from their perspectives, how would that change what we do? I feel, I feel, I hope that listeners will will go read Transfer because I feel that that would impact in the same way. Your book, your poems would impact in the same way to open hearts to the experience. Um, You know... The other thing you said, it's been eight years. I'm, I'm quite aware if we had another hour, what I'd talk about would be, um, you know, how, the, how our relationships with the people we've lost keep evolving and changing. But I felt that so much in the book. And I wondered okay. if you could share uh, ringing because it captures that experience so deeply. I would really love to share this poem here at the end. And I thank you so much, Cheryl, for, for listening to me and and meeting my father and caring about him and when i the first time i ever read this poem i was at a place called the Ch- children's bereavement center i had just written it and many of the children in the group where i was had had lost a parent and um so they were the people i read this to first it's called ringing i'm sorry you lost your father people say and i step outside to soak in stripes of gray cloud. Hand touches iron rail. You needed it. I don't. Blood circulating under skin and time, that blurred sky shifting. Air holds everyone, visible or not. Slice of lemon you craved by your teacup. Strange affection for chipped ice. Maybe the right wind brings a scent of smoldering twigs, fresh water over stone. Maybe tonight your laughter carpets our rooms. I keep finding you in ways you didn't know I noticed or knew. Every road, every sea, every beach by every sea keeps lining up with what you loved. Here's a line of silent palm trees. It's as if you answered the phone. Thank you so much for being with me today, Naomi. 
It's it's been such a Thank pleasure you, talking with you. I send you and your listeners all my love. Thank you. And, and back to you. Thank you. And Aziz does too. <laughs> and Richard, my dad. <laughs> Wherever they may be. <laughs> and Aziz and Richard, we're thinking of you. <laughs> Next week, listeners, my guest is Woody Weingarten, whose book Roller Coaster chronicles his wife's breast cancer and how they navigated that together. Woody now runs groups and does education for other men facing the diagnosis of their wives. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.